So since we are a rather small panel, uh, I think we will start opening the questions to all of your questions. But uh, I, I feel free to take my role as a chair to start with a very brief question. Um, and then we'll open for all of your questions and the questions um, online. So, yeah, I have to admit that I'm one of the animal ethicists uh, who is rather skeptical about it, but not because I doubt that it will increase animal welfare. I'm pretty sure it will. So I agree with you on that. But for me, it's kind of a dilemma between perpetuating a system that is rather unsustainable and not so respectful to animals versus increasing the animal welfare of the animals we confine. And this is, of course, very vital. So my question to you is uh, just that if you see this use of AI technologies in animal agriculture as some kind of short-term solution, as long as animal farming is such a dominant part of our culture as it is now, or do you also see it as kind of longer-term solution because it will make the whole industry much more animal-friendly? That's a question to both of you. <laughs> yeah. Um, who should go first? Maybe I'm already talking. So. <laughs> um, well, I have a brief answer where I said that I think that once these technologies will be implemented, where companies can no longer say, well, improving animal welfare, you can't hear me? Just wait a second. We again have a problem with the. Okay. Don't hear you very well. I'm sorry. Just one second. They are trying to figure it out. Yeah, in the future, AI might solve these audio issues. We'll see. So, I think we can hear you now. Yeah, you can hear me? You, we can't do it from up there. We can do it from back here. Back. Have him try. Have, have Walter try talking. Okay, can you hear me? Just, just too silent. Hmm. Animal welfare is important. Perhaps we'll have Jonathan answering the question first while we try to experiment. Can we go back to the system we had when he was giving his talk? It's going to echo with the participants at the table. Answering the question again? Uh, yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, 
Maybe you can turn the microphone off in the room when I okay. Answer the question. Okay, can you hear me now? That should work, hopefully. Um, yeah, I gave a brief response where I said that a very common objection to um, arguments by animal ethicists in the public as well, it would be great if we improve animal welfare in a farming context, but it's just not economically viable, right? And here I think that um, these technologies, smart farming and the like, um, would really push further the levels of animal welfare that are very much affordable. And once that happens, at least the public perception of what the acceptable welfare levels are, I think would also change. Now, we might still think that those are still levels of welfare we consider uh, terrible. Right? We might think, well, those it would be better for those farms not to exist at all, um, but that's certainly a degree of uncertainty where we don't know exactly how far AI will push us. And at least as an incremental step, I think we can be fairly confident um, that it wouldn't lead to something like um, um, uh, trying to freeze any further progress. So I'm hopeful that the public will become more aware of issues surrounding animal welfare. And as the public will make more calls for animal welfare to be recognized, I think the issues Jonathan raised will become more important, um, where perhaps farmers themselves will try to implement stricter um, animal welfare um, trade-offs uh, going towards the welfare side. Now, you have some companies such as McDonald's, for instance, in the US, um, owning a lot of animal farms, uh, forcing the, or deriving their uh, meat from a certain set of companies, really forcing them to implement higher welfare standards. And again, I think this is something that could happen with companies trying to force um, um, whatever the resources are, where they derive the animal meat from, or other products like milk, um, to implement higher standards. Um, so I get your argument that we might uh, be led to a situation where we will become complacent perhaps with the lives animals live in these farms where eyes uh, don't really um, care that much about perhaps their positive experiences. They lead a life that's not really worth living. Um, I can see um, the worry, but I think um, given how these technologies are developing, I certainly think we should try to implement them as fast as possible. Um, I don't see a necessary route to complacency there. Technological progress, uh, moral progress uh, in the past at least hasn't really led to stagnation and at least I'm hopeful there. Off to Jonathan. Thank okay. you, Walter. So I tried switching on the mic when speaking. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, your question seemed to suggest that I was optimistic about this technology delivering welfare benefits, which is not the case at all. Uh, I think that there are potential benefits here if there is a good code of practice drawn up now that ensures the technology is used responsibly with a degree of transparency so that we can monitor how well it is being used. Um, in the absence of that, I think what we'll see are largely illusory benefits. Uh, a lot of hype, but, uh, but not translated into 
tangible gains because of a lack of regulatory oversight. So, yeah, in my mind, that is not an optimistic view. Clarifying this, and uh, yeah, we'll now open to all of your questions in the in the room and in the like virtual room as well. So please fire. Okay. So my question is to Walter. Uh, so it seems to me there's a huge incentive for the ag animal agriculture, or, or should I call it the factory farming industry to, sorry, uh, hello, to increase the stock, stocking density. And it happened in history in another technology with veterinary drugs, mainly the use of antibiotics or antiparasitic drugs, which allow the so-called small-scale uh, family-sized farms to scale up to become factory farms because they no longer have the same worry of disease potential or disease outbreaks as they had uh, trying to scale up before. So in a sense, we came up with technology that could have helped animals by improving their health and improving their welfare because they get sick less often. But it actually was used against them ultimately because it just gave us this new industry in factory farming. And I'm, I'm afraid maybe AI can do this another time by allowing a lot of factory farms to reduce their disease potential further. And because of that, they can up their stocking density furthermore and causing the stress to the animals, which might not be compensated by the welfare gain by improving the health. I wonder if you worry about this. Yeah, I certainly think that could be um, a source of um, worries. Um, I personally don't think that will happen because these technologies, in fact, help us to take a one-size-fits-all approach where, say, um, uh, medication is given to all animals regardless of whether they have um, a certain disease or not, where obviously those uh, pills can also cause um, side effects that might be uh, very negative for the subjective experience of these animals. Um, farms are already, many I think, at a kind of uh, at a maximum where the stocking density is as tight as can be, uh, with the exception of some uh, welfare legislations, of course, forbidding um, certain kinds of sizes of cages and the like. Uh, I think this is an, uh, an area where the government just has to interfere and forbid certain kinds of uh, perhaps smaller cages. And I don't see how the implementation of AI um, would suddenly get rid of those laws. I think they would only become stricter. So in the absence of animal welfare legislation, I think this uh, could be a legitimate worry. But because we already have these kinds of laws, and I don't think they will disappear, I don't think this will become a problem. Uh, thank you. Uh, maybe a little bit of pushback still on that is that I actually realized some companies in AI companies in Asia, in Taiwan, actually, advertising the AI exactly as enabling factory farms in upping their stocking density. And that's, that's kind of evidence for my worry. And uh, maybe in Europe and 
I don't know, in some countries where animal welfare regulations might be more advanced, I, the issue could be less severe. But I worry that in Asia, where generally there are no good animal welfare regulations or any animal protection laws at all, they will simply use it to increase stocking density. And that's, I'm afraid, what will happen in China, Taiwan, uh, maybe a lot of uh, Southeast Asian countries. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I said, welfare legislations need to exist that put a limit on this, right? So if they don't, I think you're legitimate. Uh, it's a legitimate voice. Uh, developing nations uh, might, where previously we perhaps needed footpaths for veterinarians to walk through, perhaps those would be removed. Perhaps we might have some kinds of robots that um, provide animals uh, with uh, medication. And perhaps that in those countries wouldn't lead to um, ever uh, tinier spaces. And I think that's a legitimate worry. Um, but that wouldn't mean that in the Western nations or any nations that have welfare legislation, that this should happen. Now, Hong Kong, for instance, has uh, quite strict animal welfare legislations. So there's at least hope um, that in the future, um, stricter animal welfare laws will spread to other countries. Uh, think, for instance, of uh, zoo organizations um, that try to have Im and implement very high welfare standards and make, uh, zoos in developing nations sometimes try to follow up on those and also then follow up having better welfare standards because people in those countries come to expect higher standards perhaps based on experiences they had with zoos in those countries. Similarly, um, I think with meat, um, if welfare standards improve in Western nations, I think there can be a kind of trickling down where other nations will follow up on those. Um, but certainly, we don't have an impact on um, perhaps um, animal welfare legislation in China, say. And um, whatever we do, perhaps in this uh, lecture for now, might not have an impact in China, perhaps um, in the future. We'll see. Um, so, there is a worry there, but I don't think a ban on, say, developing these technologies here would stop these technologies being developed elsewhere, whether it's in China or anywhere else. Yeah, so that is certainly a worry, but at least I think in, in Western nations, I think we can vastly improve welfare. And perhaps in the future, we'll have um, developed ways to have more impact in other nations as well. take a question from the online audience. Um, there's a question for Jonathan from Rebecca Rogers. Rebecca, I hope you don't mind that I will just read it out uh, to making it a bit more smooth. Do you think that the use of AI in farming should be tackled by existing animal charities or might this require its own organization? Well, that's a very nice question because it's getting to the, the question of pragmatics and what what is it pragmatic to achieve and by what pathway, which is exactly the, the sort of question I want to encourage discussion of. And, and I think I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it's not an area that has been picked up by major animal welfare charities like the RSPCA, for example, to my knowledge, so far. And so option one is to try and encourage them. And as I say, there are existing schemes like this RSPCA Assured Scheme that could include 
clause is about how AI was used. That's path one. And then there's another path that is uh, just accept that those traditional charities are not going to see this as a priority and, and start something new that does see it as a priority. And uh, I genuinely don't know what the best path forward is, but I really want to encourage discussion of that. Great. Yeah. So, please, Melinda. So, um, this question actually meshes well with the question that was just asked. Um, Jonathan was talking about the fact that we need a code of practice for use of AI farming. And there were a couple of things he mentioned that we needed some industrial buy-in, um, but that we also needed public input, maybe in the form of citizens' councils, citizens' assemblies. And then you also mentioned an accreditation scheme, which you just mentioned again. Um, and then you also mentioned what I think maybe is the most important thing. So this is barely a question and mostly just to want to underline what you said, that we need requirements by government. We need legislation. We need to make the farms do the right thing. And it needs to be explicit regulation. It can't just be vague language about non-discrimination because people, courts, will interpret that however they want. And then, so my question is then, if we went that route, which I have some optimism that at least many states in the United States, if we actually had a fairly run referendum on the issue, that people would actually be behind a fair trade-off here. If we had that kind of situation, where we actually had the legislation, then we wouldn't need so much in industry buy-in then the, the, the balance could really be tilted in favor of the animals and not have the, the agri-business um, executives kind of controlling uh, yeah. the regulation. So it's just, a really tough, thorny set of problems, I think. I agree that top-down regulation from governments would be very welcome, and this could be a really significant moment for achieving it because there is this willingness to create regulation in the area of AI, which has not existed for a long time. That, that will has not been there in the area of farming for a very long time. But there is will in the area of AI, at least in the UK. And so there's an opportunity there to say, well, among the things you need to be regulating in the AI sector is its use in farming. And that can have big consequences because, for example, if there are rules in there about transparency, about transparency, for example, about what welfare problems have been detected and how they've been responded to. That is uh, huge for the drive to improve animal welfare generally. Um, so it could be a significant moment in that way. And my point about industry buy-in was just that um, we don't want a situation where the industry ends up fearing this technology altogether and so never adopts it at all. And so the opportunities never, are never realized. And I don't know how to manage that trade-off because we don't want to be completely acquiescent and say, uh, you know, we want you to adopt this technology industry so we bow to you and we'll let you use it as, you know, whatever way you wish. There has to be some compromise and we need to try and achieve that. So now I don't know who of you was first. 
Okay. Um, I think it's significant that both the speakers on factory farming uh, are European. Um, and Walter, I have to tell you, I think you referred to when Fai spoke as, as if China is the issue. China is, of course, a huge issue. But it's the United States as well. The United States has no federal regulations on how you can treat animals on a factory farm, except um, you know, you can, it has regulations for slaughter and it has regulations for transport, but nothing about how you can keep them on a factory farm. That's a state matter. Of the 50 states, I think uh, 14 have some laws relating to how you can treat animals on factory farms, and they, not surprisingly, are the states that do not have very large numbers of factory farmed animals. If you go to the states that dominate production, states like Iowa, Nebraska, North Carolina, and for chickens, you know, Arkansas, they have zero regulations. And I just don't see any chance of getting them in the foreseeable future. Um, I think, uh, Melinda, you said something about uh, referendums could get them, but these states don't have a referendum mechanism. Um, you know, only about half the US states have that possibility of a citizens-initiated referendum, which is what got California and a few other states um, better regulations or some regulations. Uh, so I really think that um, what would happen if we have these systems is they will be used only to increase productivity, not to increase welfare in the United States. As I, say, I think it's, it's a little different in Europe. Um, and we've seen that, um, you know, there are already studies, I mentioned some of them in Animal Liberation Now, that clearly show welfare is um, at odds with better profitability. So I quote one study, for example, that shows that um, in beef production in hot states like Texas, if you install shade, fewer animals die of heat stroke. Not a surprise. But the article also states that the beef industry does not believe that the losses caused by their animals dying of heat stroke makes up for the cost of providing shade. So basically, there is no shade in these areas. You know, similarly, we've all known for a long time that with battery cage hens, which again do not exist in Europe or the UK, but are still the majority form of producing eggs in this country, the standard old battery cage you got rid of in 2010 in, in the European Union, um, that if you have fewer hens per cage, you have more eggs per hen and lower hen mortality. But it doesn't happen because the profitability of the total enterprise is greater if you have more hens per cage. So um, I'm not at all optimistic about um, you know, these systems, precision farming, being used to improve welfare in the way that you suggest, rather than being used to maximise profitability. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what I was describing in terms of the economic optima and the welfare optima generally being misaligned. And, and so in contrast to Walter, I, you know, I was certainly presenting that as a very significant problem. Um, and I suppose your fear, Peter, there is that the paths to, to solutions I was suggesting might be distinctively European paths in the form of top-down regulation, good industry accreditation schemes, direct lobbying of comp companies that actually work. Sounds as though you're sceptical of any of those strategies working in the US context. Um, is, that, is that right? Is that yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, you have regulations. They were put through by partly public pressure um, through the European Parliament. 
Um, and, and, you know, they made some progress. Um, I agree. Here it seems like the agribusiness lobby. I think money just counts for more in the United States system than it does in European parliamentary systems. Yeah. And um, the agribusiness lobby has been able to s prevent any such regulations in the states where they have most of the animals. Yeah. Well, well I'm going to flee back to Europe. I'm very much of the view that let, let's try and achieve good regulation of AI in those jurisdictions where it is, is possible. And then see. Yeah, I, I don't want to give up hope on the US, but I rely on people in the US to sustain my hope with good news. And, uh, and often that is limited to a small number of states like California, for example. I realize that. There's this interesting phenomenon where, you know, when it's AI and animals, it potentially creates dependencies between states that are unusual. And it could be that the most successful startups here are based in California, producing technology that is then used in these states with very poor regulation. Maybe there are opportunities there, because maybe a lot of pressure can be applied to those California-based companies to put restrictions on how their technology is used to make sure that it's used responsibly. Uh, but of course, that's a thin glimmer of, of hope. So, Walter. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one thing to say is that all the examples Jonathan gave were about a trade off between economic and um, welfare interests, but it didn't mean that the implementation of these technologies wouldn't also improve welfare, even if you tried to maximize productivity. There wasn't really a focus on when they might harm them. And I think. It will be similar here that even when it comes to perhaps some trade-offs, um, perhaps um, where giving individual care uh, might be better in some cases than having an AI keep track of the states of different animals. Even the publications that have come out and the technologies uh, proposed, um, I don't really see that being the case. Um, in the future, perhaps, uh, PLF will be used to really just maximize economic profit. But so far, there is really a focus on keeping track of welfare issues. Um, and that might change. Perhaps economic incentives will become so strong in the future to perhaps, perhaps co-opt these technologies uh, in a way that then would be used to decrease our welfare. But I think at least in the immediate short term, um, I don't see these technologies being applied. Um, to harm animals. And then I was asked before whether I think that perhaps in the long-term future farming will be phased out entirely. And I think um, that's actually a fairly good point given the prevalence of artificial meat or clean meat. I've recently published a paper on this. Uh, in the long term, that will become economically much cheaper to produce uh, than farmed meat. And in that case, I think if farms continue to exist, they will focus on the welfare issues because focusing on productivity would lead them to not have live animals at all anymore. I think that's an important issue to mind as well. So we are a bit running out of time. So Henry, you have the honor of the last question. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks to um, Jonathan and Walter for two really interesting and very informative um, talks. Um, so I just wanted to ask about broader welfare gains uh, that AI might bring um, in uh, agriculture um, uh, and uh, besides the sort of direct benefits of uh, better welfare for the animals concerned. Um, so Walter, you touched on one um, that uh, uh, 
AI could maybe help us develop better protein synthesis to make cheaper, more affordable, more realistic forms of, uh, of, uh, non, um, of meat substitutes. Um, another, of course, is in arable farming, which involves a lot of suffering to and death uh, among invertebrates uh, in particular, and not just invertebrates, um, but invertebrates most of all, perhaps. And um, AI could perhaps be used, and I think it is being used in some cases, to improve um, farm equipment, um, to reduce the need for pesticides, to reduce the need um, for um, weed killers and so forth, and perhaps even, I think I've heard some speculative work, looking at um, reducing the number of animals killed through the use of uh, farm equipment by making them smarter devices that can um, avoid animal, animal death. So that's just another example, and I was wondering uh, if either of you thought this was a significant potential benefit um, associated with AI. And I guess maybe just one final thought on uh, this, maybe more controversially. Uh, as, um, as Peter's discussion of the United States demonstrates, it's not sufficient to have uh, high animal welfare standards to be a rich country. Um, but if you look at the countries that do have high animal welfare standards around the world, they are overwhelmingly countries that are really quite wealthy. And if we do see a significant GDP dividend uh, from AI, as many people are predicting uh, or hoping for, you know, a decade of four or five percent growth rates, it might lift more countries into the level of wealth and um, security at which uh, uh, animal welfare standards in law will be an easier sell politically. So I'd love either of you to sort of uh, to, uh, say if uh, either of those are significant benefits. I'm not sure I have a view on either of those things, I'm afraid. I don't have any view on which products are likely to deliver most benefit or not. I think we live in a world where everything that is created is, is hyped to a very high degree. And one has to wait and see whether the product lives up to the hype or not. Um, you know, as a philosopher, we don't, we don't need to be pricing bets. And then the, um, the question about will the exciting 4 to 5% GDP growth over the next however many years lead to more interest in improving animal welfare standards? Again, I have no idea. That's a question for one of these prediction markets where people claim to be able to predict the future. Um, I don't know. But what I do think is that we need to be talking about these things now. And of course, I'd like to see more than just talking. I'd like to see codes of practice now because we know this technology is going to be growing rapidly and it's easier to create a code of practice for its responsible use now and to wait until it's ubiquitously used and then try and do that? Yeah, great question. Um, when it comes to predictions about the future, we can at least um, remark that almost all countries that are implementing ever stricter animal welfare legislations are not rolling them back. Um, so with nations becoming wealthier, um, with people no longer fearing about their own livelihoods, whether they're going to starve, uh, perhaps the next day interests about other beings increase, um, and then interests uh, of animals will also become more important. So I think we can be fairly confident that once some animal welfare legislations come into existence, that they will become stricter over time. Those might just be marginal steps. If you think of uh, countries in Africa, um, the U.S. is a bit of a special case here, um, but there is now work um, on really improving animal welfare in Africa. It's a growing field. Um, people are taking this seriously. Farmers in Africa do want to improve animals. It's um, sometimes almost provided as a kind of, yeah, it's a misperception that farmers in, in Asian African countries don't care at all about animal welfare. 
Um, and I think that is beginning to change. And when it comes to all these um, immediate benefits we can have where economic and welfare benefits just coincide with each other, I think at least here there will be a lot of progress. Um, again, um, you mentioned the example of um, farming at large helping us to use less pesticides in a way it's similar to the issue of providing only targeted animals with antibiotics. And I think that can also be helpful. There will be less animals um, dying that unfortunately wild animals that walk onto uh, farmed areas and then move away from them. Um, but again, I think especially when it comes to the future replacement of farmed meat with artificial meat, um, there is great progress ahead because a lot of people will just not want to eat meat that has created suffering, especially if it's also that the other meat is also cheaper. Discussed responses about um, artificial meats are, I think, uh, becoming less and less important. Maybe we can ask Peter. He ate some artificial chicken, I think, a while ago, and what he thought about that. But yeah, I think the future actually doesn't look that bad. Well, that's a good word to stop with. Uh, so <laughs> a lot of food for thought to take home for all of us. And thanks again, Jonathan and Walter, for your talks and uh, discussion.